Podcastle, episode 263, for June 4th, 2013, Beyond the Shrinking World, by Nathaniel Katz, rated R, contains violence, and lots of it. Hello and welcome back to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson. There's a new subgenre in fantasy labeled Grimdark by some. Grimdark takes its name from the refreshingly repetitive Warhammer 40,000 tagline, which goes, In the grim darkness of the future, there is only war. This was a few years ago in gaming, I guess, and fanfic, but it's being kicked around in the last few months as a tag for certain fantasy writers who these days make their fantasy fiction more, quote, realistic, unquote, by making it dark and gritty. It's made darker and grittier by constant threats of graphic violence, and just about every character not being simply flawed, but an utter monstrous asshole. There's rampant racism and sexism. There's the foul smell of shit. Also, if a character is female or gay, there's a pretty good chance they'll be worried about being raped or actually raped. If the character is a straight male, then it's probably just torture, maiming, disfigurement, having your loved ones crushed before your eyes. You know, there's potential for it all, actually. Basically, if you watch this past week's Game of Thrones episode, The Reigns of Casimir, you know what I'm talking about. Condolences to you if you have. So, here are some odd observations about Grimdark I've noticed. First, I'm having a difficult time finding any authors who seriously claim to be Grimdark authors, unless, I guess, they're Warhammer 40,000 authors or fanfic authors. Although Joe Abercrombie, God bless him, has finally joined Twitter, claiming the handle Lord Grimdark. So, maybe there's one. Maybe because that label seems to get slapped around not just as criticism, but as a pejorative. Second, and please do keep in mind that I love dark and gritty fantasy at times, I'm unconvinced this actually makes fiction any more, quote, realistic, unquote. Which is a funny note to keep in mind when you realize we're talking about fantasy, but I just don't think I'd feel comfortable saying a dark and gritty fantasy book shows us more of the human condition than, say, I don't know, Terry Pratchett or Neil Gaiman or Kelly Link. Finally, what's being labeled as grimdark seems to me to be fantasy with noir sensibilities. And if you want to read something really dark, gritty, and messed up, try mystery author James Elroy. American tabloid, My Dark Places. Guys, GRRM, Joe Abercrombie, you name them. Whoa, nothing on this guy. Also, if you know any grimdark authors, or if you have any recommendations for grimdark, please head over to our forum.escapeartist.net. Let me know, because I'd love to hear more about uh, who these grimdark authors are, and whether or not you enjoy reading them. All that said, I wouldn't label today's story grimdark, partially because I'm still not sure what that means, and, you know, I don't want to mismanage your expectations, as I've been known to do in the past. So, let me just say there's lots of rainbows in this one, and ponies, and flowers, and stuff like anti-heroes, dark magic, betrayal, with an intense, seemingly unstoppable spreading evil that's almost Lovecraftian at times, also a pretty wicked weapon. So, you know, warm fuzzies. If you squinted at it the right way... You could almost call it Detective Noir. Anyway, Podcastle is very proud to present Beyond the Shrinking World by Nathaniel Katz, originally published at Beneath Ceaseless Skies. 
Nathaniel Katz is an editorial assistant in Innsmouth Free Press and blogs at the Hat Rack, evilhat.blogspot.com. When not blogging, he pretends he can write fiction. So far, Podcastle, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Space and Time, and others have gone along with the idea. He intends to write more stories set in this world, perhaps including a novel. I sincerely hope he does. I'll be one of the first people in line to check it out. Your reader this week is the awesome Dominic Rabron. Dom's the guy that answered our call for readers way back when and has been patiently waiting ever since for us to find the right story for him. I think you guys are going to love his voice. He's also the creator of Dom's Sketchcast, which you can find on YouTube. It's all about drawing and talking, and he often has on interesting guests and interviews them while drawing their portraits, as well as taking on experimental art projects like, hey, this one. When Dom sketched out the character from today's story and put it to a recording of him reading it, which I think is pretty rad. You want to check that out, and we'll link to it in our show notes. So, all hands on deck, because we're setting sail for the out. Enjoy the story. Beyond the Shrinking World by Nathaniel Katz The Knight's Tale I reached the dockside dungeon at the time that would once have been dawn, and the world shrank around me, consumed evermore by the out. The spirit, my guide, waited within. The atrium, the lord of corrections, and the entire complex seemed two worlds wed by decree. Portraiture and fine wine, offered fruit and ornate attire, dark cells beyond a cherry-colored curtain. Bring my prisoner, I said, and none dared question, not a knight and scholar practitioner so august as I. They knew the glyph carved into the base of my tongue kept me from lying. The guards brought the being that called himself Johnny in his stolen flesh. Cuts ran down his flank, long and precise, a still-living carcass torn open reached at its soul. In his eyes, spirit blues cavorted round stuck-wide pupils. I can take you outside, he'd said at our first meeting, can bring you to the mapmaker. At the time, I'd responded with drawn sword and assault, my out blade slipping through his dark flesh but halting at the spirit, parasitic within. His legs bore testament to those wounds, shallow but immeasurable. Dress him, I said. We need to be on our way. The Lord hesitated and procedure won out. I'll need to see papers, Sir Rollis, he said. Make it bloody, the Lady Clarissa, ruler of this world and all men in it, had told me. Leave no doubts. Opening my eyes to the out, embracing the scholastic arts, took only a shift in perspective like changing focus from near to far. The out's advance did not take place in a uniform line, but rather a spreading, penetrating disease Flaws of dark and empty nonsense cutting into our reality. We knew how to find those flaws in the world, how to guide our specially designed blades within them. I and my knightly brethren fought with the world's very disintegration as our weapon. Those guards of corrections, four and all, might as well have been shackled slaves against the pit's lines. My weapon entered the gaps in our world, slipping between the particles of empty air, and there... In that shallow vein of out, there was no concept of distance or even time to slow my strike. 
no obstacles to stop my blade. The tip slid by the first guard's armor without touching the mail and came back to reality only long enough to sever his jugular, emerging intangible on the other side. The others fell much the same, their parries worthless as dreamt defenses. My attacks passed through blocks and breastplates, both on paths to their hearts. These men were but vermin beneath my boots, blind and helpless. I stood in the sudden stillness that followed and listened, breathing calm. Should killing my brethren, comrades in arms if not in skill, have bothered me? It did not. Nothing did. Not anymore. Jani searched among the new-made corpses for suitable wear and, after taking the simple garb of a guard, decided to add the dead lord's own wound-red cloak. It, designed for a man of far greater girth, nicely obscured his horrid injuries when drawn up tight. The Lady Clarissa commanded it, I said, and he laughed, sole host choking and sputtering with phlegm and derision, eyes rolling and the flakes within spinning. He was a madman. No, not even a man. And yet I needed him. I would be lost and destroyed in the beyond without him. The calculations were wrong, my lady had said. The yacht grows faster than we dare dream, devouring all. Find the map maker while there's still a world to be saved. No one met us on the stairs. We emerged to a false night and made swift time through deserted streets in the city's heart. All around us, domiciles and other constructs clawed skyward, seeking space amidst the city and world-shrinking with each passing day as the out-beyond consumed more and more. A self-replicating devourer of worlds created by the brilliance and folly of a prior age. Even at that odd hour, onlookers thronged before the dock and gaped at the monstrosity of metal that occupied the sea before them. A ship of the Kriegs flawed. For those who lived and died among the towers I called home and horizon, these interworld traders were as close as could be gotten to the beyond. They sailed through the out itself, journeying from world to world on ships of steel. When I'd been but a squire, the Lady Clarissa's knight had taken me to see many such ships. Nothing held more fascination for us than going beyond, and nothing was more taboo. We sail. I said to my guide, the Kriegsflot can carry us through the out's dangers till we're close enough to strike out on our own. The Kriegsflot are one of the out's dangers, and not the least of them, Johnny told me, but he followed nonetheless. We boarded, my boots ringing on the deck, layers of duplicity thick about us. I didn't let myself look over the side at the sea. Johnny severed all but the most essential links betwixt spirit and flesh, leaving his pupils near clear and his steps stumbling. He would play my servant. A group of Kriegsflot approached us, uniforms the violet of ink sea lines on a forbidden map and glinting with metals. They were, one and all, pale as morning sun, as if their veins ran honey instead of blood. Captain Zursi! the biggest man said to me, gesturing to his bearded companion. Even those two words were harsh and foreign-sounding, the emphasis all wrong. Thankfully, though, the captain spoke our tower's tongue with a bit more ability. 
Our passengers make it at last, he said, reaching out to shake my hand. We were wondering if we'd have to cast off without you. And after all your pain, I said, smiling like it was a jest. Lines of out, penetrations into the real, convulsed between us, and I saw them as intangible tracks across his face, scars that could be. We shook. Pale as he was, his grip was strong. Glad to be aboard, I said, and Johnny nodded agreement and stayed silent. My name is Rollis, and I am knight and scholar practitioner of the out for the great Lady Clarissa, master of the towers. I offer you my blade and service for the duration of our journey. If there's an outbeast close enough for you to stab, we'll all be gone, Xerxes said. But I thank you for the offer anyway. Standing aboard the ship, I realized I'd never smelled the sea's salt from the docks. Underneath it, emanating sickly from the ship itself, came another odor, one like a world bathed in fire fuel. I wasn't reassured by the obvious presence of four lifeboats, each suspended high above the water by cables. The mate approached, a squat and mustached man, and said, Bjelsen be right. The captain turned to the crew, readying their departure. As he shouted guttural commands, I realized I'd never heard another language spoken aloud. Already I felt vulnerable and defenseless amongst these strange men. But I'd known the dangers before I'd agreed to my lady's quest. I'd known that I would not return. The mate found one of the men near us, and I more than a boy and one of the few unoccupied, and told him, Bring in the Auslanders in and cabine. The man chosen had the audacity to put his hand on my shoulder, to try to lead me as if I were some unthinking beast of burden. I wish to stay on the deck, I said, staying civil and thinking of ways to kill him, an idle and furious game. Johnny repeated the request in their language, and the mate responded, He says it's too dangerous for us to be here when we go into the out. Johnny translated, sounding more lecturer than servant. They said they'll let us out, then we'll sue it. Let us out. We're not to be caged and uncaged at will. But I let myself be led. It was too early for obstinacy, and I might as well appear easily managed until the time came. The ship's engines roared to life as we neared the entryway to the decks below, with a metallic scream unmatched by a thousand cutting saws. Ahead, maybe a mile from us, a veil of absolute dark towered. The air before it shimmered, the tower's placement stones keeping the out at bay. And so we shuddered into motion, gliding towards that boundary, towards the out. The sliding doors to the captain's dining room were lacquered wood, delicately engraved with a scene of a pond surrounded by spindly trees that looked more delicate still. They had clearly been taken from some people these creeks flot had despoiled. I could have, should have, simply moved the clasp that held the doors together. But I was wrathful from too many hours spent confined in that steel-walled gowl they called the cabin to care, and I tore the two asunder and stormed into the room. At the sight of me, the mate stumbled up from his chair at the cabin's table. The wall behind him bore a trio of hanging relics. I'd never fought such firing weapons before, but reached for my blade all the same, 
doubting not at all my efficacy against any assault. But Captain Xerxes barked some calming phrase, and Johnny, hurrying in after me, let loose a string of strange-tongued excuses. Join us, Serulis, the captain said to me then. I've been about to send someone for you. True or not, my entrance had achieved its purpose, had reminded these Kriegsflot that I wasn't to be trifled with. Face to face, in a war of words, if not blades, I knew I could hold my own against anyone, convince my foe of anything. Alone, though, my fears had been getting the better of me, swamping me like the damned smells of salt and oil that were everywhere on this ship. Two servants scuttled into the room from some side door, one bearing me a seat and placing it so that, reclining in its plush embrace, I couldn't help but look at the doors I'd ruined. I didn't let it bother me. Johnny, not having been given a chair, took a position behind mine. The meal began with enough wine to drown the oceans. Xerxe, judging by the red in his cheeks, was already well into his. When's our next immersion in the out? I asked, trying to at least lessen the room's tension. Can such things be known? Not for some time, Xerxe said. A day, perhaps. The mate, bored already with the music of my tower's tongue, grunted some farewell and left. Xerxe ignored him, saying, Now we sail through waters not so far from our once populous island. Do you know what happened to it? I shook my head, though I had a guess. One of the servants, both likely sailors temporarily free from duck duty, brought the first of the evening's platters to us. The Machmaker, the captain said, as I'd suspected he would. We are edging by the far westward edge of her empire. I turned to the metal walls of the ship and spied the out through them. To our left, regular, fractured reality petered out no more than a few hundred yards from us. Past, a pale and empty world beckoned. Do you know what the mapmaker did? Xerxes asked. This her spies, she traced this world's contours. This her men, she kills its leaders. This her thieves and her traitors, she stole its placement stones, left it defenseless and opened to her shaping beams and the out. He leaned forward, doomsayer and campfire tale-teller rolled into one. And do you know what happens next, brave knight of the towers? Salvation, I said. The only way to survive, even if it hurt to do so. His chronicler's grandeur fell away like water scorched by the sun. Is that what you call it when the people die? He asked. I could sense Johnny tents behind me. This wasn't the towers. The Kriegsflot were used to dealing with all manner of spirits and would know just how to destroy him. Not all progress can be bloodless, I said, and the choice is not between their continued existence or their death, but rather the end of the world by the out or its flawed saving by the mapmaker. She saves it for her and hers, none others. Her salvation is another's desolation. She preserves a world by ending its inhabitants, and you and your brethren call the wasteland that she leaves behind saved. Safety and sterility, I said. A line about between us, like a burrowing worm. No man, no problem, as a once-world unificationist had said. No dreams, no damage. 
The Owl no longer advances into those lands, even if the inhabitants had to be sacrificed to stay it. Better five living long and free than a million miserable and doomed. All men must eventually die, Xerxes said. But all have the rights to live first. The mapmaker gives that right to those yet unborn, those who will never be born if the Owl devours us all. When the cost is all who live, save hell chosen, he said. It hit me that I was alone upon this ship, and that this man before me, newfound hatreds etched deep into the lines of his face, had say over my life and death. The door's breaking had been provocation with a purpose. This conversation had been that, pushed near to the point of insanity. I apologize, I said. This grew more heated than I intended, and we shouldn't let such metapolitics cut between us. He nodded perhaps still hoping to please his guest, but I doubted the suspicion in his gaze would ever depart. Still, at long last, we two turned to the meal before us, and I saw an entire fish delicately slashed to chunks, skin still clinging. Some multi-limbed monstrosity with a tentacled head and rudimentary wings, and what looked like broken rocks swimming in a butter sea. Fearing the last, the least, I popped one whole into my mouth, this was not the proper way to eat them, as it turned out. Xerxes guffawed, our disagreement forgotten, and Johnny, horrified, showed me the proper method of cracking open the shells and eating the tongue-like flesh within. Consumed in this fashion, they, I'll stern, as I was bid to call them, were acceptably fair. Despite that jocundity, the rest of conversation felt composed of ideas skirted. After the meal, one of the servants led us back towards our quarters via the open top deck. The night air hummed and buzzed with the sounds of our placement stones, relics from the long-ended age before the out, a last-ditch attempt made by those who'd unleashed such ruin to save the world. We weren't in the thick of the out, but we were probing its edges, and the stones fought their eternal war. They would lose one day. Each and every placement stone was winding down, no matter how slowly. Unless the mapmaker intervened, the last would fail, centuries hence, and the out would become all. Until that day, though, the edges of the stone's boundaries, a scant dozen feet from the rails in our case, glimmered in the night. Cold, our guide said to me, maybe the one word of my language he knew. I nodded. Maybe I even liked the fellow. Behind us, a wave crashed against the stone's boundary, the water sizzling and shrieking at the contact. None of the Kriegs flot reacted. They were somehow used to this. In the night, I knew that demons, corporeal manifestations of the out, swam all around. Only with these treacherous Kriegs flot or, in Johnny's care, could I navigate such regions. We passed below the decks, and our guide left us at the door. As soon as we were inside, Johnny says, You've doomed us. Nothing like that, I told him. Just stood up to them. I collapsed on the hard bed, the buzz of the wine spreading with the impact, writhing and magnifying into a tide of drink-sodden tiredness. Even worse, Johnny said, his eyes rich with terror and his panicked, too-visible spirit. You put us among these heretics for a journey of weeks. And now our quest is to end because of it. We shan't be with them for weeks, 
Sailing all the way to their capital would take us far past the mapmaker's domain, if what you said of its location is true. At the closest point, and I'll leave the judging to you, we'll kill the crew and finish the journey in one of their lifeboats. Wanting to quench his continued fear before giving into my exhaustion, I added, yawning. Worry not. None of them will be able to stand before me when the time comes. The time will never come, Johnny said. If you don't listen to me, you'll die tonight. The words reached me only after crossing great mental vistas. You're tired because you, like all men on this ship, were drugged. Sleep is regulated and watched here, for it is then that you're most vulnerable to the salt-invading reach of the alt. The captain will come for your dreams and wander them, searching for creatures demonic. Oh, he said and paused. For those plotting their little treasons, their planned liaisons with the mapmaker, and their planned massacres of his very ship, crew, and person. Even in the face of such words, sleep advanced on me, inexorable, and I slipped towards its warm chains. That is how the Kriegsflot survive in these waters. I can guard your dreams, I heard him say at the end, but only if you let me. And so, Johnny came into my mind. The resulting sleep felt more like a hunt than rest. As I lay, with his fingers upon my brow, probing my depths and keeping me safe, I hid my secrets, those dark dreams and deeds that all possess. I feared, as all sinners do, that some moment of repulsion, of terror unmaskable, would accompany his knowledge of my soul. No such shift ever came. When I woke next, it was he who dragged me forth from slumber, and stark terror rode his face. Those above are dreaming of something, he said, and it's coming. It's not possible, I said, mouth dry as salted sand. The captain would know. I thought he would act, Johnny said. But they've been with the Zeman for hours now, and he does nothing. I rolled off my bed and reached for my blade and garb knowing we couldn't warn the captain without him realizing Johnny's nature and, with it, his relationship to the mapmaker. And so it was that we found ourselves in the farthest of the crew's sleeping areas, walking past slumbering roads unimpeded. That one, Johnny said. And then that. There. And him. Here as well. To each, I administered my one cure for sedition. Tracing the out in the air... I, scholar-practitioner, slipped my blade, ephemeral, past flesh and veins and into the heart, slashing through their dreams with my steel. I learned the full story of the night's events, as seen by crew and captain, during my morning meal with Xerxes. A demon came aboard in the night, he said. We didn't see it until it was far too late. He looked haggard, and it occurred to me that... As he spent the night prowling dreams, he must get most of his sleep in the early parts of the day. Light invaded our discussion from broad windows. In this sliver of the world, day began and ended early. Into that atmosphere, a messenger entered, countenance and tone composed of naught but terror, and said, I'm unschlieft. A man sleeps, Johnny said as the captain rose, grabbing for one of the relics on the wall. I followed as he ran for the deck, hand on my blade. 
By the time we reached the scene, two of the sleeper's fellows had already attacked with clubs. Two blows into their struggle, the inimical dreamer lay unconscious and weeping blood from inconsolable injuries. Then, at last, the men looked to their captain for guidance. The demon will never leave him, Xerxes said. Not if he sleeps in the day. Saw him over the sight. The splash was lost amidst the waves, but still Xerxes watched, relic in hand, for long moments. At long last, he turned away and went below, leaving behind instructions to be woken if anything untoward occurred. He'd barely cleared the deck when the first call was heard over the waves. Ein Vogel, one sailor suggested. A bird, Johnny translated for me, but none truly believed those words. The mate talked briefly with two of his fellow officers, clearly debating whether to summon the captain and deciding to hold off unless something more immediately threatening happened. All the same, a half-dozen of the Kriegsflot, relic-armed one and all, assembled at the ship's rear to scan the seas, and we all knew that we were in some foul beast's sight. The sound came again, sharp and high. This time, a low rumble followed it like thunder lagging lightning. The mate began to yell out commands. As men scrambled to obey him, their panic plain, he sent the nearest running for the captain. Someone must steal to him, Johnny said to me. The demon could only find us if someone calls his name. All men are on deck, I said, and none slumber. All men are on deck, save one, he told me, and then I knew how the captain had not detected the dreams. I and Johnny slipped away below decks, unnoticed by sailors reaching for oars and oaths, staring at the horizon and praying to their gods. We met no one once we descended, but a faint sound always seemed to come from just ahead. A sound from the captain's room, with the sailor sent to retrieve him, standing terror-struck and immobile at the door. Zaius, the captain said, chanted. Zaius, his voice rising with each repetition. Zaius, Zaius. Zaius! I tried the door and, finding it locked, slashed the lock with my blade. Inside, the captain writhed on his bed, and it became clear to what extent the barred door had muffled the sound. For he was not only saying the name, but screaming it, bellowing it, and his eyes danced wild in their sockets. Xerxes! I shouted, trying to be heard above the din. He's beyond help, Johnny said. Bowing my head, I advanced, blade raised against the presence of that invocation. Through the steel of that ship, I could hear the reverberations of the demon's answering call, weaving and harmonizing with that of its summoner. I gave the captain a swift death. In the silence that followed, I first noticed the way the ship's tremendous momentum had ceased altogether. The powerful vessel seemed but a parody of its captain, and, for all its mass, it seemed to writhe upon the waves as the demon Zeus, unimpeded by the captain's death, surged nearer upon tides tumultuous. We ran for the deck, Johnny and I, and I dealt the moaning messenger a one-stroke mercy as we passed by. The scene above was a hell dawning. More than half of the sailors were sprawled on the deck, eyes rolling as they shouted. Those that had not yet succumbed clawed at their own skin. Screaming something, anything, to keep that voice from their thoughts, those words from their lips. A few, far too few, held out at the ship's rear, 
repelling any of the touched that tried to come near with volleys of relic fire, the shots inaudible in the din. They are gone, Johnny said. The mate, among those last sane men, saw us. I could see the recognition in his eyes. See, he shouted, raising his relic towards us. Kattelgothen! The first shot, thunder loud, missed us, but the second did not, and Johnny fell, shrieking and trying to crawl towards safety. I dragged him to cover before they could fire, hiding us behind one of the deck's many obstacles and obstructions to their clear sight and aim. The mate rallied those with him to come for us, no doubt thinking us responsible. Before, I'd never seen a relic with my own eyes. I now knew that even I couldn't stand before one's might. A wave rose upon the horizon, but not a wave that crashed and died. No, this wave but grew, and it turned as it did and shuddered. It was a wave alive with flesh and intent, speeding towards our vessel as a titanic eye opened in its center, and a thousand unseen mouths shouted its own name in a thousand different tongues. What was that beneath all those noises? Could it be a final voice whispering that name? A voice in my mind and in my soul? A voice that was my own? But I had no time for such dark thoughts, such pessimistic possibilities. I grabbed Johnny and dragged him towards the nearest lifeboat, and ignoring his weak and whimpering resistance. A man, the one who'd laid cold the night before, I realized, walked into the center of the deck, staggering towards the ship's rear and the creature beyond it. Zaius, he said, mindless, and I could see the lines of Al protruding from his mouth, waving in the breeze of his devotion. He collapsed then, falling under a hail of relic fire. But he rose again, and when he opened his mouth... Was it sentient, that tendril of nothingness? Controlled in some hitherto unknown manner by the beast? I didn't know. But it shot straight for the mate, reached him and wrapped around him, and left about a screaming, boiling mess in its wake. I savaged the cables holding up our lifeboat without exploiting blows, and we crashed down into the sea. For a moment, nigh endless, my mind bore only one thought. Zeus, his name ultimate and ultimatum, threat and world entire. But I was not defeated. I drove out that beast with my vows and with the thought of the lady that I served, and my oar bit the water. All we worked for, Johnny repeated, a defeatist litany, a rhythmic counterpoint to each stroke. Zaius reached the Kriegsflot ship, and the sound of steel twisting and men dying echoed loud above the waves. Somewhere ahead, day turned to unnatural night, and the out beckoned, terminal and growing. Raw into it, Johnny said, hands on his wounds, voice pained and tone sure. I stared at him as at a man mad. I can hide you there, he said. The demon will never think to find you in the out. I believe you, I said. The map maker will come for us. I believe you, I said again. I had no choice. I was in night eternal and I'd blindfolded myself with the remnants of my tunic. One of the last visions I'd had was Johnny shredding his human form, skin splitting and mist pouring forth from his veins in a great and gaseous tide. The last... The last had been of the Kriegsflot ship, mauled and sinking, 
and of the men aboard it, dead one and all, a sight magnified and dancing in the melted mirror reality of the out. Far off, in all directions, we heard the sounds of dementia, of names, distant and unspoken and innumerable. time I doubted you, Johnny said as I bandaged his leg with what little of my own garb I'd left. The projectile had shattered the flesh, but had stopped at the spirit, which still flowed flowing thick and undamaged within. He would likely never walk without pain again, but he would not die. I know you'll do what needs to be done, he said. To save the towers, I said. No, to save the vaults. Did I dream dreams in those days and hours and moments? I cannot remember. Looking back, that infernal and demonic name seems imprinted on all remembrances, but I believe it to be but a specter, one of sorrow perhaps, and even guilt, at letting those Kriegsflot die as they did. Zeus, that specter, whispered in my mind, and I quieted it with willpower and force. I trust you, Johnny said during one of our rests, at a time that might have been day or night, that might have been minutes or weeks since our last stop. I didn't know how to respond. At the height of an indeterminate day, at the apex of an indeterminable hour, the mapmaker came for us and... The Night's Quest We were saved, the Knight Rollis said, finishing his tale as he knelt on the top floor of the mapmaker's tower. The tower was open to the sky and looked down on the world and, in its own way, was the world. The court of the mapmaker sat silent around him. This structure was taller than even those towers for which his world had been named. From here, the unified land could be seen stretching impossibly far all around. Beyond, the out endless. But he could not feel the out here. Not even a trace. Not a single of its lines. Darkness truly had been banished in the land of the cartographic tyrant, and Rollis knew fear. He was helpless here. It is true, Johnny, now back at the mapmaker's side, said. Every word of his tale is reality. Knights cannot lie. Wisdom that all knew. But he could. He'd cut those truth-telling runes from his tongue with the Lady Clarissa's blessing, and those wounds bled red and visible as he spoke his deception. Appearance is reality. His lady had told him so many times, and it was. The mapmaker now reaching down to pull him up with her own hands. Believing his words, his lies of omission and intent. This night, she said in her so augmented voice, has sacrificed everything. He and the lady lord that he serves rose above their neighbors and even their society to do what had to be done. Treated salvation as a cause greater than safety, life a goal stronger than comfort. Like most visionaries, like most rebels, he was hunted, but he survived. Rebels, like all those against his lady's wishes, deserved death in Rollis's eyes. He supposed he should be afraid, standing in front of this once-human demigod, this mapmaker who had led to so many deaths. But he felt nothing, only duty. 
Her skin was like a tapestry of inhumanity, skin engraved with the living line, the lines of which seemed to dance upon her flesh. She seemed at varying times a woman and a personification of the landscape, the caves and structures of her face more landmarks than features. The mapmaker said to him, speaking low as if they shared some private booth, I have a quest to offer you, a chance a few men receive, the chance to save their world. Those you love are doomed, but with your aid, their world and race can live on. I need you to enter your home, that world of towers, and destroy the, as you call them, placement stones that lie beneath it. Only then can your people attain salvation. I know you'll do what needs to be done, Johnny had said, Rollis remembered. I trust you. His trust had been misplaced, for Rollis's loyalties had their beginning and their end, and both extremes dwelt within the towers that were his home. The Lady Clarissa anticipated your request, he said, and she told me to agree upon one condition, that you and your generals, your elite, accompany me, so that she may know your quest is not false. If you stand amidst the towers as they fall, all shall know that some remnant will stand tomorrow, lest you two be buried beneath the rubble that you and I together cause. She needs to know that there is something after, that she's not simply driving her people to an ending. The mapmaker inclined her head, and he could see the broad rivers winding thick on her pate. Your terms are accepted, she said. We leave on the morrow. He saw through her lies, knew that what could kill mortals would leave her unfazed, untouched. Find the mapmaker while there's still a world to be saved, the Lady Clarissa had told him, and he served no one but her. The demonstration the mapmaker had promised, the fulfillment of someone else's destiny, came then, a salvation equal and as long planned as that of his own people. She strode to the edge of the tower's open upper level, and her flesh was blue with oceans, black without, and writhing with life and death. There's a world dying amongst the many, she said, but today we will bring its people to salvation. Rollis had never heard the name of this to be unified land, had never known of its existence, but he knew enough of the world's and his world to know its story, how their borders were shrinking every day, how the out took more and more, and how, in recent years, that process had accelerated endlessly as the mapmaker probed and found what she needed for her sterile conquests, sending her agents to steal its intervention-halting placement stones. It was the same everywhere. All worlds were shrinking, ending, and everywhere, she was there to speed the process and save the land and end all. Then the engraving began. From this highest level of the tower... Looking over the entirety of the once world now shattered, there were three maps. The first was her flesh, the mapmaker's own body. The second was the tower's upper floor that they stood upon, marked and raised with landforms and rivers, mountains and trees, structures in the miniature running in shadows of men moving across its ground. And the final map was below, the world itself, shifting to accommodate the thievery and masses of placement stones. This world's now among them, in the mapmaker's grasp and soul, the sorcery of her knowledge. Four master artisans worked on the map on the floor, but
but they were not the leaders. No, the mapmaker blazed the trail, working with knowledge memorized and a knife made of crystal and magic most exact. She drove that blade into the flesh above her knee, the area where the country would fit into her jigsaw creation, and the precision and speed she showed should not have been possible. They, Rawless and those of the mapmaker's court, saw Genesis. It was not perfect, of course. Huge swaths of this territory and all others had been eroded by the out by the time of their salvation. Perhaps an entire third of the world that once was had been forever lost to the out. Still, buildings and livelihoods and art made the transition, spiraling out into the mapmaker's flesh with dimensions too small to be seen by anyone without one of the magnifying microscopes of old. It's too late for any measures but the drastic, the mapmaker said, invocation and justification. For the briefest of moments, a blink in their lives, the people of this world appeared all across the ground and flesh of the mapmaker. And then they were gone, killed one and all by the transition from their world to hers, by the shift from the reality before to the reality of her will, ultimate. The only paths left, she said, are flawed salvation and slow death. In the distance, down below in the real world, representation had become fact. That new world lay on the horizon, intact, impervious to the out, and barren. The towers were to be the next recipients of the mapmaker's empty mercy, their land preserved and their citizenry slaughtered. Find the mapmaker while there's still a world to be saved, the Lady Clarissa had told him. And kill her before it's too late. Rollis boarded the ship of the mapmaker, the great vessel used to seize land beyond sane measure. It towered metallic above the ocean and the harbor, a monolithic vessel of war stolen from the Krieg's flot. As it sounded its sirenic bellow across the waves, as it departed, Rollis thought that name, and it grew titanic in his mind as they sailed free of the mapmaker's domain and into the out beyond. Zaius, the name of safety and salvation for all those he knew and served. Zaius, the name of his weapon in the coming one-strike war. Rollis was an assassin, a would-be slayer of the great and terrible cartographer so near him, a man on a suicidal quest to forever shatter all chances of a new whole world. He sat beside her at feasts, he drank the wine she offered, and he downed the food she provided, and he reveled in the company of her singers and musicians uncountable, her mummers skilled and her courtesans divine. And that name crept from his lips into their hearts, spreading among the menials of the ship like a soul plage, like a corrupter and a seducer. Zaius, the actress spoke between her lines, the vocalist crooned under his melody and the harlot through her climax. With each mile they drew further from the mapmaker's domain, the lines of the out spread, a multi-limbed erosion, a plague reaching unseen through the ship. And it spread, that name, unchecked, amidst the ship of those too arrogant to view the out as a danger. And they luxuriated ever more extravagantly with each day's slow sail towards those death-marked towers that had always been his home. On the seventh day it bubbled up, impossible to banish, and, come that night, all chaos fell. The mapmaker and her elite, now aware of their peril, halted the ship and walked its halls, searching without a Kriegsflot skill for some mark of taint. Rollis waited in his cabin through their farce, 
his outblade resting across his legs. And when the wail that he now knew far too well came, the sound of the waves and the wave of the beast, of Zeus, he walked the halls and, with but one stroke for each, fell all those that he had met. Out onto the decks he strode, at the apex of that out-nearing night, and he held himself before the escape boats for their approach. Come they did then, panic and terror, written across the faces of aides and lackeys as the mapmaker herself hurried clear of the lower decks, while, behind, her warriors carried out a too-late cleansing of those helpless down below. We can still make it to this house, and one of the smaller boats, Johnny said, standing beside her. There are costs too high for any end, Rollis said. Deeds too dark for any gain. Now that coming wave towered beyond the ship, and it, summoned, roared poison into all air. We die here, Rollis said. We, and our goals, and our too dangerous plans, and our deathly dreams. Johnny, now realizing what Rollis had done, ran at the night as best he could on his wounded leg. Rollis couldn't kill the spirit man, but he could break him, and he left him maimed and bleeding on the deck. The map maker met his eyes then. It ends, Rollis said, and he ran towards her, ignoring the rest as they scattered. She met him in his charge, and she grew vaster with each step, arms swelling into the full force of shifting lands and punishing winds. But he was a knight and a scholar-practitioner, and her attacks were but a gale spinning wide of life. His first blow bit into her shoulder, and the land there was cleaved in two, the blue spirit mist of what she'd become leaking out of the chasm. She dove at him, seeking to overpower him with brute force, and he spun left and cut her legs to pieces with a dozen outfueled blows too fast to comprehend. She staggered and fell, and he cut into her again and again, leaving her flesh and her words and her worlds hanging loose in ragged remnants of skin and dreams. He couldn't kill the spirit within her, not truly, but he could contain it. They'll die, she said, staring up at him with a plea in her eye and ruin in her soul. All of them. The world will shrink around them, come years near, and nothing will remain. Some cures bite deeper than the disease, he said and slashed through her lips and destroyed her teeth and promises. Better live a hundred years with none after than die now for a broken future. And Zayus came, his shadow falling over all, the thousand thousand mouths of his depths roaring wide, his name filling every particle of air and out both. As that end came, Rawlis thought of the towers, of worked stone and glory clawing skyward from earth and sea, of those left behind, of their descendants that he'd doomed and their lives that he'd saved. And welcome back. Well, like I said, wicked, huh? Was it Grimdark? I don't know, but I hope you enjoyed it. We've got a couple of administrative things to talk about before we get to feedback. The first is our impending flash fiction contest, now that the pseudopod is wrapped up. People have been asking when the flash fiction contest will be happening. Well, start sharpening your pencils, kids. We've got a tentative date for July 1st open to submissions. 
Some rules still need to be ironed out, but they have to be original stories, obviously, and they have to be told in 500 words or less. Two entries per participant. Once we do get those rules finalized, we'll post them on our forums. But for now, get writing. Second, science fantasy. We haven't forgotten. It is coming. It might be coming as soon as this summer, although at least one of the stories I want to run we can't run until later in the year, so we might have a second dose of the cosmic for you around November-ish. Okay, let's head over to feedback now. This week is for Richard Bowes, The Queen and the Campion, read by Wilson Fowley. This was the story of Queen Victoria and a lost-in-time Merlin who answered her summons. It was picked for us by M.K. Hobson as the final story in our guest editor month. Generally, people seemed pretty charmed by it. Devoted 135 said, One thing that I particularly liked was how Victoria was a strong, independent woman who also loved deeply. Unlike Elizabeth I, she was able to be a strong ruler and a wife at the same time. Though I don't blame Elizabeth, I blame the 16th century. I also felt that the story had a great sense of time. All the little details about which monarch did didn't call on Merlin were really cool and the nod to the future George VI was a great fangirl moment for me. I can just imagine him calling on Merlin to help him give speeches in spite of his stutter. Bartok said, Centering the story around Victoria's linear timeline anchored her in a way that kept an inherently confusing concept clear and almost matter-of-fact. The exposition was seamless. Side stories kept attention without diverting focus too long, and a story about friendship instead of romance is a nice change of pace. The tone of the story appealed to me, and the lack of central tension or antagonist seemed completely natural. Bottom line, I liked everything about this episode. Host, narrator, and story delighted me and brightened my day. Oh. And Ka said, I wondered at first why Wilson Fowley was selected to narrate a story where the main character was female, but even that made sense after I got into it. To wit, he's just that good. Also, Ka, butter. Well, thanks very much for those comments. Please chart a course to forum.escapeartist.net. Let us know what you thought of this week's story. Talk to me about Grimdark. And if you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. Your money goes to paying our authors and keeping our podcasts floating while keeping the shrinking world at bay. Thank you. Well, that was our show for this week. We do hope you enjoyed it. On behalf of everyone here at Podcastle, Anne Leckie, Peter Wood, Anna Schwind, and myself, thank you so much for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next week with The Mermaid's Hook, courtesy of Liz Argyle. Until then, set your swords for stun. We'll see you next time. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend or post to your blog about it or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Our closing quote is from J.R.R. Tolkien this week. That's right, we brought out the big guns this time. He wrote, The world is indeed full of peril, and in it there are many dark places. But still there is much that is fair. And though in all lands love is now mingled with grief, it still grows 
perhaps the greater. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.